Let's go ahead and get started. We, uh, we're looking at our second chapter this week, Eternal Security. Last week we covered salvation. And, um, this is a nice follow-up to the first chapter. I mean, it's all laid out logically, but it, it's an important one. I did want to briefly touch on what we ended the class with, that question about as far as how do you answer your, in a specific case of how do you answer your child who's doubting maybe uh, that they maybe are not sure if they prayed, they're not saved because they didn't pray the exactly right prayer, you know, the sinner's prayer, if they didn't say it just the right way and there's doubt. And because uh, even if it's not a kid, I mean, I think adults... Uh, early on in their Christian faith can struggle with the same question. You know, did I do it the right way? Am I sure that I'm saved? And uh, so I was thinking a lot about it, and uh, it actually will fit with some of the stuff we're actually talking about. But I think the answer I gave, I don't know how convincing or how helpful it would be for a a young person, a young child. Um, I mean, someone very young. Uh, So I was thinking... How do we? How would we approach it? And I, I was thinking about Ephesians two, eight and nine. So if we let me just go ahead and read that real quick before we. And I'm going to try not to cut into too much of the lesson today because there's a lot of stuff. Here. But Ephesians two eight and nine. Most most of you probably already have this memorized. For for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourself; it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. So if we think about that, what the implications of how we actually came to Christ, if it's if it's a gift of God by grace, when we have a question like that, whether it's our you know a child, a young person, uh, a new believer, an adult, I think maybe that would be a better way to start because then you could say you know thinking about well how did you let's look at what the Bible says as far as how we actually how you are got saved. It's not a matter of how you, did you say the exact right words. It's a gift of God. So God, uh, by grace, saved you because you trusted him. And so if that's the case, then even if you didn't say the right word, it doesn't matter because it's not by you. Because that verse, what verse 9 says, not by works so that no one can boast. So if, if it's not about us and there's nothing that we can do to claim any kind of credit, then we can actually look towards... Um, maybe that's one way that we can kind of give some confidence in those situations. So I don't know if that's, uh, it's just I was thinking about it. So I don't know if that's any more helpful or more unhelpful, but my two cents on that, that question. Um, so we are looking this week at eternal security, and it's a good, uh, one of the reasons I thought it was a, it's an important topic because it's one of those topics that for new believers you struggle with this idea of eternal security. You know, am I really saved? And it's that crisis question or situation usually arises in the context of some sin. You know, you if a person who's just saved or just coming to Christ and they are engaged in some type of sin that, you know, you're like, I don't know how I could do this. I just did this. And, you know, how can I really be a follower of Christ if I'm doing this or I'm caught up in this or I'm, you know. I remember when my, as I said, I was saved at 24. So I remember there being... A few times where you know something would happen, and I'm like, man, I, there's no way I'm really a Christian if I'm doing this. So, this question of eternal security is important to understand uh, for new believers, for all believers. Um, so we'll kind of walk through it. 
So it says on page 12, the Bible teaches time and time again that once you're a Christian, you are eternally secure. That is, you cannot lose your salvation. It is often stated, once saved, always saved. As we work through the study to find out what the Bible says about Christian sin and eternal security. So the Bible teaches that salvation, the salvation you received at the moment you repented of your sins and trusted in Christ is irrevocable. Yeah. Yeah, so you can't lose it. (laughs) So I should have practiced pronunciation on that one. This vital doctrine is called eternal security. Once you have been saved through from sin by grace and through faith, you are eternally secure. You cannot be lost. Eternal security is indeed a foundational doctrine and is supported by the entirety of Scripture. So when you trusted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, a lot of things changed and they changed permanently. You were hopeless and lost before you trusted Christ, but now, and then this is the first section, you were saved by grace. So Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, we just read that. And uh, as it says, as we discussed in chapter 1 regarding your salvation, they apply also to your security. So verse 8 states that you were saved by grace. <clears throat> it is, uh, in the English, have been saved. It represents a tense in the original Greek language. It speaks of a completed action with results that continue on in the future. I remember my Greek professor used to say with this uh, with this particular tense, it's the idea of, you know, you're, you're up in a building looking at a parade. You know, there's how, the, the different tenses. So it's not, you're not just looking at a section of the parade. You're not focusing on one float. You're actually seeing the parade as it's going by and looking where it's going. So you're kind of seeing, uh, you know, the present with future implications. The Bible is saying that the salvation that you have received by grace, that is God's undeserved favor, unmerited favor, continues on into the future. So if we read Galatians uh, 3.3, uh, and I have it here. So are you foolish after beginning, this is Galatians 3.3, are you foolish after beginning by means of the Spirit? Are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? So how did you enter God's family by faith or your own efforts? So the obvious question and answer is uh, by the Spirit, means of the Spirit, if you, Galatians 3.3. So how you how will you remain in God's family and mature by faith or your own effort? So uh, obvious answer by faith. Uh, so can someone read John one twelve through thirteen? Yet to all who did not who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born of not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or of a husband's will, but born of God. So in light of what was just read, what privilege or right did Jesus give you when you received him as your Savior? Verse 12 there. What is uh, John one twelve? Become children of God. Children of God. So what strict... Qualification must you meet to enter in the Christ's kingdom, according to John three three, and that's the, you must be born again. And Nicodemus had a good question in the next verse. Next verse, how can a man be born twice? Jesus, Jesus explained what it means to be born again in John three five through seven. Your first birth was physical, and when did that happen? Uh, see when you were born. Your second birth was spiritual. When did that happen? And that is when you were born again, when you were regenerated. 
And when you received Jesus Christ, you became a child of God. You were born into his family. God is your heavenly father. And then we have a couple anal- uh, comparisons by analogy with our own parent-child relationship. Um, so, if, you know, with our own situation, parent-child, it tends to be, you know, it's temporary, permanent, obviously permanent. Um, I think in our culture, you know, there's a breakdown in some of that stuff. So mm-hmm. there's a breakdown in that analogy here in, in the present culture. But once you become God's child, you are his child forever. Here's an illustration. As you grew up, did you ever make your father or mother angry by disobeying them? So I did on a, on a regular uh, occasion. So when you did, were you still their child? Yes, but I'm sure my mom probably wished I wasn't. There was probably some problems there. <clears throat> I was just telling Pastor Ken about this story. I probably shouldn't record this. When I got... Uh, I remember when I was in junior high, I got caught stealing cigarettes from a store. She caught me, actually. So she found the cigarettes on me. She took me back to the store and with the cigarettes and wanted them to press charges. And they wouldn't press charges because they're like, well, we didn't catch, actually catch you, so we can't do anything. So then she took me to the police station and said, I want you to arrest him. And they were like, well, yeah, we're not going to arrest him, you know. But that was uh, one of those things I'm sure my mom was regretting having a son at that point. Um, you still had a... So returning back to the, the notes, you still had a familial relationship with them. You didn't have to go to the courthouse downtown and become adopted. You were their child regardless of what you do. Your relationship as a member of the family was unchanged, but your relationship within the family, what we call daily communion, was hindered. You weren't as close as you had been. So the same is true as of your relationship with your Heavenly Father. When you sin, you're still His child. It is your relationship as a member of the family of God. <clears throat> and this is an important part. But you aren't as close to Him as you were before you sinned. Your relationship with the family, your daily communion is hindered. So that's an important point to continue. Uh, remember, not just for ourselves, but when we talk to other people who maybe are struggling with sin. Mm-hmm. Our sin doesn't break that relationship but it does break that daily communion, uh, our daily walk with the Lord, as we, if uh, with that sin, you have a familial relationship with God. You become part of His family the moment you are saved. You are secure in Him. Though your sin hinders your daily communion with God, your relationship as His child is eternal and unchanging. So this is one of the the next topic on page fourteen. You are in Christ is really one of the important ones. Uh, this idea of being in Christ. I don't know if, how many of you have heard this this idea of being in Christ, that is union with Christ. This is kind of one of the big central ideas uh, to this, this larger topic of salvation, of being united with Christ. And so this is kind of one of the big ones that we can hang our hat on mm-hmm. as we move through this lesson and try to recall some of the, the stuff. So, the Bible teaches that when you trust Jesus as your Savior, you Savior, you gain a new position. You are in Christ. You are intimately joined to Christ. Since you are in Christ, you have the same position and privileges before God that Christ does. So this is one of those central things that we need to understand. Because of, because of what we, uh, our position in Christ, God sees us in the same, in that same way. We have the same position and privileges that Christ does. 
So Romans 8.1 says that since you are in Christ, you will not face condemnation. It means you will not be condemned for your sins. Christ already paid for them. This is the uh, substitutionary atonement, this idea of substitutionary atonement in Romans 8.1. That is, Christ paid the price that we actually deserve. So God will not charge us again. We won't be uh, condemned or you know, brought, those charges won't be brought to us a second time. <clears throat> and it's important to think that way because we don't want to think God just forgot about our sins. That somehow, you know, because now we're Christians, God, you know, he just looks the other way. Like maybe our, uh, you know, uh, a judge or maybe our parents, you know, we, we look the other way when it, our kid maybe do something. The sin still had to be paid because of God's holy nature. And he poured that wrath out on Christ. 1 Corinthians 15.22 says that though you were dead before salvation, in Christ you have been made alive. So 15.22, for as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. 2 Corinthians 5.17, can someone read that? That's a good one. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. So that we are a new creation. So that's important, an important idea, and it will come up again in, in, uh, later in the lesson. So the second half of the verse lists the practical results of the new birth. What were they? That is, 2 Corinthians 5.17, that is, the old has gone and the new is here. And Romans 5.1 says that when you put your faith in Christ as your Savior, you were justified. That means that at the moment, God declared you to be righteous. This is forensic or judicial, uh, forensic or judicial declaration. <coughs> that initial sanctification, that initial uh, positional change of being justified. <coughs> Romans 4.11, 23 through 24 teaches that at the moment of salvation, Jesus' righteousness was imputed to you. It was counted for your credit. Although you continue to struggle with sin, it is in your practice, God now sees you as being as righteous as Jesus Christ. The question is why or how. It's because we are united with Christ. So, on some level, it's, it's hard to believe that, you know, as we sin somehow, or, you know, as we still live our life, as we still make these same mistakes, that how can God see us as righteous? You know, that righteous, that perfect righteous, righteousness that Christ had. It's our union with Christ that is uh, the reason that that can happen. Romans 8.30 used, uses several, several words to describe God's work of salvation on your behalf. One of them is glorified, and it describes the condition of those in heaven who are free from sin, disease, and death. <clears throat> the verse says that God has already glorified you, that is in past tense. In other words, in God's eyes, your salvation and glorification in heaven are so certain that he describes it as already occurred. You are eternally secure. So, the implication of being in Christ 
is that you are united with Christ as you are kept by the power of God. So this is another one of the big concepts. And I'll, I'll point, there's three that we can kind of hang our hats. Union with Christ, and now the second one, you are kept by the power of God. Throughout church history, the matter of eternal security has been addressed from two different perspectives. So there's perseverance and preservation. Perseverance deals is the teaching that genuine believers will all persevere until they are with Christ in heaven. Uh, so one first John two nineteen. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. And teaches that those who don't persevere do not lose their salvation. Rather, they prove that they never were believers. And that's an important point. So it's not that they walked away and lost their salvation. That somehow, you know, it didn't work or it didn't stick or it failed. It's that the, First John tells us that they actually were never part of us. <coughs> so preservation, the other uh, matter, the other issue of eternal security. It focuses, it focus, excuse me, its focus is not on the Christian, but on God himself. It is the teaching that God will preserve all who are genuinely saved. According to 1 Peter 1.5, you do not keep your salvation by human effort. Rather, you are shielded by God's power. So this is, this deals with God's faithfulness. Preservation, the doctrine of preservation deals with God's faithfulness. In other words, the trustworthiness, um, that is God's trustworthiness to act according to his promises. So we can trust God because of who he is, because of, uh, because of, uh, he is all truth, to act according to the promises that he makes us. So, uh, John six thirty-seven through 40, and I'll probably read some of these because uh, we're, there's a lot, uh, it's a big section, so I'll probably read most. John six thirty-seven through 40. <clears throat> All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I, sh- I shall not lose of all those he has given me, but raise them up on the last day. <clears throat> For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. Christ teaches that he will not lose any that the Father has given him. Similarly, Paul says that in 2 Timothy 1.12 that he knows that Christ is able to keep the things committed to him until his return. That is Paul's salvation. Uh, would someone read Jude 24? <coughs> to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present me before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. So, uh, it teaches, that is, Jude 24 teaches that God is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you without fault in heaven. 
The question is not whether you could lose your salvation, it's whether God could lose you. And this is the key point there, that last statement. It is whether God can lose you. So our security is bound up with who God is. So it's it's an important point to remember. It's not dependent on us, but it's dependent on who God is. Were it up to you to keep yourself saved, you would be in trouble. And I think most of us would admit that. Thankfully, God has been has made keeping you Christ's responsibility. You are perfectly secure. So John 10, 27 through 29. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. In verse 27, Jesus calls those who have received him as their Savior. He calls them his sheep. And how do saved people prove they belong to him? That is, we, verse 27 says that we listen to his voice and that we follow him. So the three promises in verse 28, if we read uh, verse 28, I give them eternal life, so that's the first one, and they shall never perish, the second, and then no one will snatch them out of my hand. So the three promises there. What was the third one? I'm sorry. Uh, you, no one will snatch the, them from his hand. Okay. <coughs> Excuse me. You went too fast. It's one and two. <laughs> sorry, eternal life. Uh, we will never perish. And no one can snatch them from us, from God's hand, from Jesus, the hand of our Lord. And what promise does Jesus make in verse 29? No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. He will keep us. So in other words, he will keep us. So the implication of what 10, 20, uh, and actually John 10, 27 through 29 is one of the key sections. Uh, John 28, especially John 28, 10, 28, is one of the key verses for eternal security. So that's one of those verses. It's good to remember. It's good to memorize. 10, 28. It helps us to see, is God able to keep you? Of course. Is he willing? Yes. So it's not that he's only able to do so. He actually wants to do so. He's willing to do so. And what important promise did John or Jesus make in John 6.37? Basically, all those given to him will never be driven away. So not only will so, can no one else snatch us from God's hand, he won't drive us away. <coughs> Romans 8.35 and 30 through 39 are comforting verses for the Christian. What question is verse is asked in verse 35? It starts out, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? It is, who shall separate us? God from his people. Can somebody just read 35 to 36 and we can get the, uh, the difficulties that are mentioned? John 8, 35 and 36. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, or hardship, or persecution, or famine, 
or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. So trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, death. And the answer in, given in verse 37 is none. We are conquerors in Christ. And then all of the things in 38 and 39 that cannot separate us from God's love. It says, death nor life, angels or demons, present or future, any powers, heights nor depths, or anything in all creation. That is, so 38 and 39. Paul says, I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jeremiah 31.3 describes God's love as everlasting. And what does that mean? It'll go on for eternity. It's forever. So, this final question. Can you lose your salvation only if God stops loving you? And scripture says that that is impossible. Because of it being bound up in who God is. God's spirit is in you. So far we have learned that you are saved by grace in God's family, in Christ, kept by the power of God and in his love. Scripture also also teaches that God is in you. So read 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20. Can someone read that? Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. So, what does it call us? It's the temples of the Holy Spirit. And of course, this being Old Testament language, talking of temples. In the Old Testament, God lived in the tabernacle. He later lived in the temple, the permanent place of worship in Jerusalem. Of course, God is everywhere. He's omnipresent. But the tabernacle and temple were his special dwelling places among his people. Now God's special dwelling place is in his people, including you. Some people believe that the Holy Spirit lives only in obedient Christians, but the Bible teaches that he lives in all Christians. Read 1 Corinthians 3, 1, and I'll, I'll read that one. Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly mere infants in Christ. How does God describe the people in the church of Corinth? Corinth. He's like foreign. What's that? Foreign. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 3, 1. Yeah. What was the answer for that one? That's what I'm asking. So what is Oh, okay. 
I thought he said foreign. No. I was like, oh. Mere infants in Christ. Mere, worldly, mere infants in Christ. So even though they were saved, the Corinthian Christians were disobedient. Yet, just 15 verses later, God calls them God, excuse me, he calls them God's temple. Do not lose the Holy Spirit in your salvation. Excuse me, do you lose the Holy Spirit in your salvation when you sin? And no. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. And you were also, excuse me, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. So verse 14 there being the important part. Who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance? Verse 14 says the Holy Spirit is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. When you purchase a home, you make a down payment or a deposit. And that deposit signifies our intent to purchase or our intent to own. In that same way, God gave his spirit to you as a deposit. It is his promise that he will complete the transaction. You are assured that your eternity in heaven, our inheritance, is settled. In fact, verse 13 says that you have been marked with a seal, promised Holy Spirit, like a letter whose contents are secure. And that's an important point uh, to highlight. God gave his spirit to you as a deposit. It is his promise that he will complete the transaction. So we, again, our eternal security, this idea of eternal security is not bound up in what we do. It's not bound up in things that we either do or don't do. It's bound up with God, who he is, as a what are his attributes, his person, but also the fact that God gave his spirit to us as a deposit. So that is his promise that he will complete the transaction. God's life is in you. Throughout scripture, God's promise, God promises life to those who have received Jesus Christ as their personal savior. Have you repented of your sin and asked Jesus to be your savior? If so, John 5, 24 is one of the many promises to you. What does it promise? And that it promises whoever hears God's word and believes in him has eternal life. According to the scripture, those who trust in Christ have eternal life. Eternal life does not become yours when you die. You have it now if you've trusted Christ. And we are a new creature. New creature. And this is another important point. <clears throat> this point is an important safeguard of the doctrine of eternal security. Some who criticize this teaching argue that it leads to a life of sin because the Christian has no fear of losing his salvation. So, such belief that eternal security is dangerous is based in reason, not scripture. Charles Spurgeon responded aptly to this groundless, groundless charge. The question is, is it in the Bible? If it is there, let none of us ever say it is dangerous. So 2 Corinthians 5.17, again, we, we highlighted this verse before. Paul states that the Christian is a new creation, new creature. The results of this of the new birth are evident in everyday life. As the old has gone away, the old the new is here. And the book here says a genuine believer does not want to sin. He has no desire to return to the bondage from which Christ delivered him. And then does your life demonstrate this type of change? So this is a 
this is one of those, uh, I guess you have to flesh this one out on your own. I mean, I think, especially early on in the Christian life, you know, that probably that statement, there may not, a gen, the statement that a genuine believer does not want to sin, I think there might be some question about that, depending on where you are as your Christian maturity. Because I think having a sin nature means that there is a, there's, you're always battling with that. Sin no longer can have mastery over us, and that's what Romans 6.14, so can someone read uh, Romans 6.14? We're kind of off script here, but I thought it was important to point out. <clears throat> Romans 6.14. For sin will not rule over you because you are not under the law, but under grace. Right. So sin no longer has mastery over us, which means we can have success in our battle with sin. Not complete success, not perfect success, but we can actually have some type of success because otherwise the commands of Scripture, there would be no point to them, right? Why would God tell us to live a holy life, to, to make these changes if we actually couldn't do them? So there's... There is the opportunity for success, and it's because we are a new creature, new creature, because sin no longer has mastery over us. So that's important to remember, Romans 6.14. Is it true that there, it is true that there are those who claim to be saved yet with continuing sin without consequence or regret? So some of us actually may know people like that. You know, they claim to be saved, continuing sin without consequence or um, regret. I remember having, I had an uncle who was like this. My grandma was convinced he was saved. But you would never, you couldn't tell him from any, you know, an unbeliever. He lived no different than an unbeliever's life. You know, there was no, absolutely no mark other than he prayed the sinner's prayer one time at a church service. Um... So this idea of being a new creation, new creature, didn't, how could that, you know, there's some kind of inconsistency there. If you're a new creature, there should be some mark of that, right? What about them? So 1 John 2.19 provides the answer. Those who appeared to fall away went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. Those who continue in sin without, no, with no sign of new creature living are not saved, nor have they lost their salvation. Rather, they were ne- never were saved. Indeed, John teaches that true Christians would have remained. That's the perseverance of the saint. That's an important point. They never were saved. And that's actually a hard truth for some of us, especially if there's someone that we actually deeply care about. You know, if there's someone in our life who we actually... You know, means a lot to us. We actually care deeply for this person, but we don't see that evidence of true life. It's it's a tough doctrine. It's a tough pill to swallow to think that they actually are not saved. Ultimately, we can't know the spiritual state of this person, but the Bible is clear that there needs to be some type of evidence of spiritual life. Now, we're not saying that Christians can't backslide. We're not saying Christians can't sin. But the Bible is clear that there has to be some type of spiritual life there. Is there any thoughts on that? Any questions? Pushback? Any 
anything clear or want asking for clarification on that? What about that verse that says like the sinners or adulterers and all the different you know types of people want to inherit the kingdom of heaven? Yeah. How do you take that into context? Well, I think that actually proves that actually says what John's saying. You know, it matches really well with what John's writing in his epistle. Is that you know a lifestyle marked, and that's what that that verse is talking about. It's a lifestyle marked by those things oh, okay. that is that you've lived, and those those tend to be the, the the hallmarks of your life. Then those are actually evidence that you're not with, uh, one of us. So. It's not. I don't think that that verse is saying that someone who, who maybe has committed one of those things, never, would never return. You know, have eternal life. It's that you have a, um, a lifestyle that is, uh, you know, marked by that. That is every you know a long term evidence uh, life evidencing those type of sins. And that's really what we're doing with a lot of this thing is we're looking at the long term picture, kind of the long view. We don't want to isolate, like, you know, one aspect of someone's life and say, let's see if they're a Christian by looking at what did, what did you do last month, you know, or, you know, today, what did you do? And, well, I don't know if a Christian would have done that, you know, that kind of thing. So it's kind of looking at the long, the long haul. It's <coughs> a good question, though. Any other questions or pushback on any of that? Scripture teaches that true believers are indeed secure in Christ, secure to obey, not to sin. The true believer walks in obedience, but he is not motivated by fear, like those who believe they can lose their salvation. Rather, he is motivated by love for his gracious Savior. The difference is life-changing. So that's a that's an important truth to internalize, that this doctrine of eternal security is actually very liberating because you don't have to worry, am I doing the right thing? Am I on the right path? Is God happy with me? You know, it's not a constant worry of, uh, did I do enough to get in? Next section here, fact, faith, and feeling. So this is kind of the third important topic that we need to make sure we're, is clear in this section. There may be times when you don't feel safe. Such lack of assurance may be caused by sin that you've allowed to be part of your life. It may be Satan's attempt to discourage you. Whatever the cause of doubt, you must remember that your salvation is not based on how you feel. It is based on the facts of God's word. Your responsibility to God in faith, excuse me, your responsibility is to respond to God in faith based on Bible fact, regardless of how you feel. And this is an important point. We don't, our feelings change, you know, multiple times a day. You know, we can, even on the same topic, as we go about our day, you know, you can, you know, within an hour, you can have, your feelings can be up and down. Kind of like Donald Trump. That's right. (laughs) (coughs) That is a good, that is a good example. The facts uh, are that you are saved by grace. You are now in God's family. You are in, you are in Christ. And by, I'm not endorsing or any. You know, I just it's a good example. But I'm not. <clears throat> you are in God's hand and love. His spirit and life are in you. You are a new creature. God has promised that He won't cast you out. 
So Titus 1-2. The hope of eternal life which God who does not lie promised before the beginning of time. So we, what we learn about God from Titus 1-2 is that God does not lie. He cannot lie. You know, we sometimes when you are working with young kids or talking to your child, you know, is there is there anything that God can't do? You know, and your first inclination is, for, especially if you ask a kid, is there anything they're going to say, no, God can do everything, right? God can do anything. God cannot lie. It's inconsistent with who he is. God does not lie. How does that description of God prove that you cannot lose your salvation? So if he says we have it, if he promises to secure it for us, we can trust his word. Regardless of how we feel about ourselves. The belief that you can lose your salvation, one point of a theology called Arminianism, is not a minor issue. It is believed by millions. Its implications for individuals are obvious. However, its implications for Bible doctrine are also great. The stakes are very high. And now it just points out a couple of the uh, implications here. False teaching has a low view of salvation. (coughs) So it teaches that you have this initial gift of life, eternal life by grace, but you have to keep that salvation by works. So you you receive the gift of eternal life by grace, but you actually, to stay in God's grace, you have to work at it. So obviously a problem there. It has a low view of sin. Many who teach that you, you lose your salvation by sin also teach of necessity that it is possible to live a life entirely free from sin. So, you know, if, we, if you remember, if you were sat through Dr. Combs's, uh second hour that he taught a little while ago he talked about this fact of this higher life mentality Wesleyanism uh, Keswick theology that there's somehow belief that you can uh, reach a a crisis point and then rededicate your life to Christ and then live a life free from sin which the Bible does not which you know is contrary to what the Bible teaches Number three, this false teaching has a low view of God. It teaches that God would bestow a gift, then change his mind. It teaches that he would exact punishment for one sinner two times. It makes him fickle. So this is this is an important point of these of, of these implications is that it would make God exacting punishment on one sinner two times. So he, as we already said, he exacted punishment for sin on Christ. And if he were to do it to us, it would actually make him doing it a second time. Read Malachi 3.6, and that is, I, the Lord, do not change. So you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Here God states the reason why he did not destroy Israel, though they certainly deserved it. The reason he gives for his continuing mercy is, I, the Lord, do not change. So it's bound up in his unchanging person, his unchanging nature. And how do we understand when you see if God does not change, what does it mean when he says, I repent that I have made them, I have made mankind in Genesis? So how do we understand that? Or he regrets or something like that when the scripture talks about that. 
Are you familiar with what I'm talking about, or is it? Before Noah. Yeah. Before mm-hmm. the flood. Yeah. So let me read it real quick. So Genesis chapter 6, starting in verse 5. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. And he says later in verse 7, I regret that I have made them. So saying on one hand, we read in Malachi, which is the last book of the Old Testament, I, the Lord, do not change. And then in the first book of the New Old Testament, in Genesis, it's saying, I regret. So it means something there. It, if you read it on the surface, it means something, how he changed his mind. I regret that I made them. Did he make a mistake? Did he change his mind? How do we fit those two ideas together? This isn't part of the lesson. This is just extra bonus. <coughs> Is it a problem? Is there a problem there? <laughs> so how would we explain that to someone who asks that question? If God says he doesn't change, that is, he doesn't change his mind, he doesn't change who he is, he doesn't change how he acts, but then he says, I regret that I made mankind. So it seems like there he's changing his mind about what is his idea of man. How would you well? How would you explain it then? So, if, for those of you who don't see, there's an inconsistency there. How do we explain it? I mean, there isn't. There is obviously the, the easy answer is no. There's no. There is no inconsistency because scripture agrees with scripture. But how do we understand that con- these ideas, or how do we understand this concept then? Is it more of a um, I'm trying to think how to even? Explain it. Is it more of a situation in the moment that he's expressing great displeasure with mankind at the moment, um, and his re- regret that he's uh, that it's talking about there is more of uh, the situation at hand or in the moment versus um, an eternal regret where he would go back and change it. Go back and change it. So there's that view. Is it something to deal with uh, a momentary situation or how he's dealing with a particular situation in the in the moment versus kind of a big picture? If he right. actually, he's not actually changing anything, but he just maybe regrets in that moment right. or somehow emotional. I don't know if maybe emotions maybe not the right way to put it, but so there's, that's one explanation. Yeah. I would make the argument that since God is holy. And he cannot stand the presence of sin, having man and making the choice to actively willfully sin against him. It was ninety. I would say ninety-eight percent of the world was in, was living in sin. I'm not saying everyone was a bad person, but everyone was living in sin. To have that huge percentage of the population turning their back on God, and I don't know if God felt sorry that. We had to go through this because the only way to get rid of sin was to have that perfect sacrifice. And since Adam was the first man, 
and he was corrupted. He couldn't be through. He couldn't be through anyone at this point. Right? Be, I don't know if he was just trying to set a, set up the stage, so to speak, or if he knew how it was going to end. And he just regretted that this had come to this point. Yeah, I think. Yeah, so I think you're building in the right direction there. You're talking because now we're thinking about God, God's holy nature, and so the effect that of seeing sin. And it's talking about the whole world was just completely, you know, rife with sin, all of mankind. Even, I mean, it doesn't say Noah was sinless, but it did say that Noah found grace in God's eyes. So even, you know, humanity had turned away from God very quickly, within a few generations. The earth was corrupt. Sin was having its way on, on God's creation. It was no longer good in the way that he made it. And so this affects, the effect that has on a holy God. <clears throat> so we're, we're, I think we're moving in the right direction. Uh, think about it, and maybe we can, we'll bring this back up next week, so we'll end on that. We'll, we'll not end the lesson. We'll, we'll kind of put the pause on that, but think about how that fits. So it's, it's dealing with how do we, how do we understand God's unchanging nature with the idea that somehow he, he regretted making mankind? Uh, or if they're, you know, what, how those two ideas fit together. Maybe not if there's a conflict, but just how those two ideas can fit together. How do we explain it? How can we understand it better? So th- this false teaching has a, a low view of God. That is the idea that you can lose your salvation has a low view of Christ. It teaches that although he died for sin, <coughs> excuse me, his death is inadequate to pay for all sins and insufficient to satisfy God's justice. John 19.30 tells of Christ's sixth cry from the cross. It was a declaration of victory where he said, it is finished. That glorious phrase comes from one single Greek word, it is a word used to describe a payment or purchase, and it means that no account that the account in question has been paid in full. So Christ paid in full for your sins. No more payment is required. It is finished. For God to require two payments, one by Christ and one by you, would be unjust. So this isn't a good point to consider. When Christ died for your sins 2,000 years ago, all of our sins had not yet been committed. We weren't even, you know, <clears throat> even thoughts in someone's mind yet. All of your sins were yet in the future included, including those who committed yesterday, today, and even tomorrow. Yet according to John, 1 John 1, 7, how many of them are washed away by Christ's blood? Even those you have not yet committed. They're all washed away. Charles Wesley's hymn, Love, Love's redeeming work is done. Hallelujah. Fought the fight. The battle won. Hallelujah. Finally, 1 John 2, 1 contains a very strong proof of eternal security. And it is found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Although God's desire is that you not sin, he has also provided an advocate or a representative for us when we sin. And that is Christ Jesus. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, which means he has already satisfied God's wrath. So in conclusion, it is essential that you put the issue of eternal security to rest. It was a little fun there.
Be certain that you have indeed trusted Christ. Make sure your lifestyle indicates that changing, that change befitting a new creature. Compare your life with the fruits of, of Christian, the fruits of a Christian listed in 1 John and the words of 2 Peter 1.10. Make every effort to confirm your calling and election. <clears throat> Once you have placed your faith in Christ alone, rest in him. As long as you doubt your salvation, your insecurity will prohibit you from growing or serving. Take God at his word and stand secure in the promise of 1 Peter 1.5 that you are shielded by God's power. Move past your towels and get busy. Remember, sin does not change your relationship with the family of God. However, sin does hinder your daily communion. So that is God secures and guarantees the final salvation of all believers. So that's an important idea. God secures and guarantees the final salvation salvation of all believers so three important lessons on page 21 i'll just point that out so that kind of how do you hang your hats we are in christ as a and as a result of being saved excuse me you are in christ as a result of being saved by grace through faith we are in christ we are kept we are secured by god is number two our understanding of eternal security must be Approached by and through scripture alone. Not by feeling, experience, observation, or comparison. So that's a really important one. Our understanding of eternal security must be viewed through the lens of scripture. We can't do it by feeling, experience, observation, or comparison. Especially comparison. That's one, you know... uh, I've heard personally with new believers, you know... Why am I struggling so much? How can I keep making a mess of this? I look at this guy over here; he's got it all right, and I'm just making a mess of this. So we don't want to. We want to make sure that when we explain it or we talk to people about it, we, we stress that. Last, the only other thing we want to do is when you that last point: Do you believe that you know this material well enough to teach it to someone else? If not, review it. So, review the material. You never know when you have an opportunity or the need, their need will arise that you want to teach it to someone else. So make sure that you can that you can do that. <clears throat> Any other questions? Uh, comments? Pushback? All right. Let me uh, close this in prayer. Lord God, we, uh, we just thank you. We thank you for your grace and mercy to sinners. We thank you for this gift of eternal life that we don't deserve. We thank that, thank you for all we have in Christ, all that we've been given, all that we can look forward to. We pray that our lives would be a testimony to you, that they would be pleasing in your sight, that we would internalize these truths as we learn them, that we would live them out, that you would be pleased with our lives our sac- and the sacrifices we make for you. We pray for the coming, the rest, remainder of this week, that you would help us to uh, live for you, to your praise and glory. In Jesus' name, amen.